One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack, for which uh, it's a very familiar looking room today. First of all, hello Chris. Hello, you're right. Yeah, look at you grinning away. You're basically hanging around like a bad smell because you've got a whiff of Princess Victoria Louise's perfume, haven't you? <laughs> I've just heard the magic word. <laughs> you can sniff out a German themed podcast at 30 paces, can't you? Someone said something about German Navy, and I didn't even ask what it was. I just turned up. (laughs) Standard. Right. Okay. And our guest today, let's be really official. uh, Our guest today is Andrew Locke. Andrew is a PhD from the University of Suffolk, almost. He's also a trustee of the Great War Group, which I I may have founded, but that's not the point. Uh, Lockie, how did this talk come about? Use this to sell what you work at the Great War Group. Well, firstly, let me just say it's an absolute pleasure to be uh, on the podcast uh, today uh, again. We've been doing some recording today. So it's nice to be here in a kind of content creating uh, capacity sort of. And this talk is a sort of version of one that I gave um, to the Great War Group membership who signed up to our uh, course on waging war. Uh, and so we've been rocking and rolling through the major combatant countries um, in the, the the First World War, uh, talking about um, just what it was not so much the military side of things and the and the kind of operations and the battles and, and stuff like that. We do a little bit of that, but actually it's more about kind of societal pressures, things at home and what it was like for people at home and the countries themselves and the dynamic uh, of waging war, not necessarily the tactical um, side of things. So actually, it's a bit of a step away from my research, which is tactical and pure military, uh, and this yeah rocks into society as well, which is which is really important. It is really important. So we've done it uh, in, like this. So basically, the membership can sign up for these courses, can't they? And this is an eight-week course, um, and we did eight different countries. Well, we've done six now. I did Britain the other day, and we have Italy and America yet to come. Uh, but Nikolai has done uh, lectures on Austria-Hungary and Russia. Uh, you did Germany. Jim did France, unsurprisingly. Uh, so we are actually going to talk about how Germany as a nation waged war in World War One, aren't we? Um, but I think we need to go all the way back to 1870 first, don't we, to explain why Germany is the way it is, how it thinks and how it ends up in this mess in the first place. Yeah, kind of. I mean, it's it, it's a successful country, really, um, but it's one with uh, a very deep, proud uh, military tradition and also quite a weird leadership uh, in the sense that on a certain level, they're 
they're democratic, um, sure, in the sense that after German unification, German unification comes out of, um, it does come out of conflict, uh, conflicts that Prussia uh, fights alongside its, its German uh, allies against Denmark and Austria, uh, well, Austria, uh, and then it becomes the Austro-Hungarian Empire, really, uh, uh, and then France as well. And France is the big one in, in bringing these uh, German states together into one single massive Central European uh, power that, that Germany becomes uh, founded kind of around Prussia with most of the top leadership. Prussia. Well, in fact, to be honest, it, when it comes to the top, top leadership, um, we end up with an emperor uh, of, of Germany and then individual kings still uh, in the German states. I mean, Bavaria had its own monarchy uh, until 1918 uh, as well. But this this figurehead, this German emperor uh, at the top. And then uh, below that, kind of taking care of the day-to-day running uh, of Germany, you did have elected officials. And on a, on a certain level, it's more democratic than Britain, uh, for example, in the sense that there's more people in Germany, or, or, or a higher percentage of the population of Germany can vote rather than Britain, because at least all men could vote, which we didn't have in in. Britain, I think, 1871, we're still talking about maybe like 60% of men could vote and no women. I know women could vote in Germany at that time either, but um, but a higher proportion of the, of the people could vote. Thing is, what we had in Britain was a head of state who was answerable to Parliament. You know, we hammered that out in the 17th century, uh, really, and, and, and over many centuries. Whereas uh, with Germany, you had a head of state, and, and by the time of the First World War, obviously it's it's Kaiser Wilhelm II, um, and he was not answerable to Parliament. So on the other hand, it's it's kind of democratic, elected officials taking care of the the day to day running of the country, but with Henry VIII uh, at the top, kind of untouchable uh, there. So and and he alone had war making power. So when it comes to a decision for war, he's going to listen to his advisors. And really not necessarily anyone else if he doesn't want to. Um, and his advisors are pretty uniformly men in their 50s and 60s from a background of uh, usually the military in some capacity or other, um, with often having um, served uh, as an officer in the Prussian army and uh, been involved in... Uh, the, the kind of military academy uh, and then gone on to take on, you know, maybe significant civilian roles, uh, but also pretty commonly seen in uniform. So Chancellor uh, in 1914 is a, a man called Bettman, uh, Thibault von bettmann holweg You can see him in his military uniform, uh, if you like. Uh, the Minister of War at the time was Erich von Falkenhayn, and he goes on to be uh, Chief of Staff in the German Army through the war. So you've got this crossover, and it's a weird, incestuous echo chamber of military men in civilian roles that would advise the Kaiser on war. I mean, not to denigrate Chris's future father-in-law, uh, but he is <laughs> he is a bit of an issue, isn't he? Phil Helm. We've had a good laugh at his expense when Katja Hoyer was on. Uh, he's got some issues. Uh, his parents, well, his mother, has quite a lot to blame for those issues. But he is uh, an unfocused and not necessarily bright character. Uh, but he's good at PR, isn't he, before the First World War? Um, it, it, in the, yeah, in the sense that he's very popular. Because um, I mean, he's the had whole... to, like, because there's no precedent. It's not like we have precedent for pretty much everything. 
but they had no precedent. They had to look back to the medieval time for German royalty precedent, didn't they? Um, his, his fate is very much tied to the success of the country, and the country is extremely successful. So why would he not be held in extreme prestige? Yeah, especially if he's tied to the fate of the army as well, and the army is extremely successful. So yeah. yes, yeah, the Kaiser is is untouchable, not just from a kind of a constitutional point of view, but also from a, a popularity and a, and a loyalty point of view. They've got the reason to put their faith in him and in the army and in those big Prussian institutions, which are now German institutions uh, as well. Why would why would they not? Okay, so. Germany ends up in a war. I think it's fair to say that we grew up being told the big bad Germany was all to blame because of a blank check, uh, when actually people like Austria-Hungary and Serbia, especially Hungary, actually, seem to have got off quite scot-free in the blame stakes over the last hundred years. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's that there's that thesis that has gone around, hasn't it? The, the sleepwalkers thesis, which is we all just sort yeah. of bimble carelessly into into war. Um, I I contest that actually you don't move several batteries of artillery to within range of Belgrade and then open fire on it by accident or by sleepwalking. No. Someone's gotta someone's gotta give some orders uh, there. Austria um, wanted a war. They thought they were getting a localized war, but they wanted a war. Yeah. And I think they had problems and they couldn't they didn't have the wits to come up with anything other than a big war. To, or no, maybe maybe just a little war, maybe a little war, and maybe the Russians yeah. won't get involved. But if they do, then then hey, our big friend Germany was probably the strongest army in the world. No, I'm going to say it, strongest army in the world. Uh, Germany yeah. had uh, in backs, and and, and they Hungary did. very much to blame for this because Hungary doesn't want to imp- well to improve matters in Austria-Hungary. You would have had to give better representation to more people, and Hungary are massively in opposition for this because at the moment. It's only them and Austria. You make it a tri-monarchy with Slavs having their say as well, and Hungary misses out. So they are blocking a lot of what Austria might have considered prior to the First World War. Hungary have quite a lot more clout than people think, and uh, that's largely due to the fact that they kind of control the food. Um, they, I mean, Germany's, Germany actually couldn't... It's in the same position as Britain prior to the war and Austria. Um they couldn't feed themselves. Uh, and so Hungary quite rightly thought that they should um, have a, a significant amount of say within the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, but then you're right. I mean, how many languages have you got in the Austro-Hungarian Empire? 19, is it? But that when you had the wars of unification that bring Germany together, Bismarck could potentially have said, yeah, let's, let's, bring, let's bring Austria-Hungary into this and create this gigantic... Uh, Central European superpower with a, a German language at its core. But I think Bismarck went, uh, no, do you know what? I don't fancy that, actually, and all that nonsense uh, away to our south. So let's focus on just, just Germany itself and leave the Austro-Hungarians to do their thing. And they stay friendly. I mean, what, what kind of brings them together, I guess, is, is the, the fear of encirclement that, um, that Germany really had. Uh, Bismarck was also quite, um, he didn't like the Austrians because they were considered to be ma- massive rivals to Prussia. And they thought if we get Austria involved in, in Germany, then they're going to start trying to take power away from us. And we're Prussia's in charge. We don't want them to fuck up, uh, to mess up our uh, nice <laughs> idea. 
I think uh, the, the blank check does exist, though, doesn't it, Lockie? And Germany is, in part, just as all the countries are, culpable for the beginning of the First World War. Yeah, again, they, they had problems and they couldn't think of anything better than a war to solve them. Um, what had happened, they'd let their, you know, initially Bismarck engineers alliances with the Austro-Hungarians and with Russia. Um, but uh, when Bismarck gets the boot and, and Wilhelm, uh, the second takes over. He really lets that Russian uh, Russian relationship sour. Um, Russia having their backsides handed to them by the Japanese in their little war spurs the Russians into uh, military reform. French very worried about a strong Germany. They go through military reforms as well, and they're kicking on hard while the Germans are having their naval arms race with Britain. Um, in the early 20th century. Now, when it comes to the naval arms race, Britain does comprehensively outspend Germany. I mean, you know, this is the Navy. This is not something that Britain can really afford to lose out on. But also with France and Russia going through their military reforms, Germany then has to put the emphasis on army spending as well. And this is when there's fighting going on down in the Balkans as well. So things are cooking. If Germany, Germany's sort of feeling like war could break out across Europe. If it does, it's surrounded by the French and the Russians in this cast iron alliance. If it does, is it better to have a war sooner while Germany has the strongest army in the world? Or is it better to wait and let the French and the Russians go through their army reforms and then try and fight them? And really, there's only one answer to that for them. So they're firm in the belief that... um, they're not touchable in an, in an army sense. You know, they can win a war. But even so, I think there's belief in the German Reichstag in particular. Um, uh, and the Chancellor Bettmann Holweg thinks that he can possibly achieve a lot of Germany's aims without going to war. Maybe threaten war, mobilise, bring your strength together and then get the British to negotiate and mediate between the powers. And actually, you can you can solve a lot of your problems without the need to actually go to war. You can have climb downs, you can have reassessments and, 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 and look at the balance of power. Trouble is, the Austrians start shooting. And so any chance of, of climb down really stops because Russia feels like it has to uh, mobilise. And as soon as Russia mobilises, really, that takes the decision away from Germany. Okay, I'm going to flip things around about now. We'll come back to land warfare, but longer in the making, I think, uh, and more, it's definitely very personal to the Kaiser. Christopher, talk to us about the naval arms race and Germany and that. Traditionally, Germany's not really been a sea power before, uh, before it, well, before 1871. You've got a few ships kicking around. They got beaten by the Danish fleet um, warships <laughs> during the uh, Second Schle- um, Schleswig War. Um, and although they did all right during the Franco-Prussian War, they became, I think it all boiled down to the Kaiser. He, he just didn't like Edward VII. And Edward VII took them on the tour. He, you remember seeing all these um, British warships and passenger liners. And he thought, he turned around to his staff and said, right, we need a navy and we need to do it now. And so you get Alfred von Tirpitz, um, who later becomes an admiral, who then tries to push through massive spending reforms to, um, to pay for a, a larger navy. And as Germany gets more and more of an empire, they 
they need I say empire that that sausage factory outside Lake Tanganyika, uh, <laughs> but they need uh, a naval police force to uh, react to any problems, and so the spending goes up. Um, unfortunately, the British have got uh, the I think it's the 1889 Naval Defence Act. Where, so which, just explain that to people. The two power standard from 1889 means that Britain pledges to itself that the strength of the Royal Navy will always be equal to the strength of the next two biggest navies put together on the planet. Which is, um, there was a, I saw a discussion the other day about had Russia gone to war with Britain in 1905 after the uh, bank incident, that the uh, Russian squadron would have been completely decimated before it got to the Mediterranean, just with the reserves of British warships. They wouldn't have had to break out the majority of the fleet because they outnumbered them that much. Um, then you get HMS Dreadnought come along in 1905, um, Jackie Fisher's love child to the Navy, um, which makes all previous battleships obsolete. And Germany, suddenly go, Germany, France, Russia, Austria all go, crap, we need one of those. But they can't build them at the same pace as Britain can build them. Um, so by 1914, the German Navy is the, yeah, it's the second most powerful, second most modern in the world. But it's still not the same size as the Royal Navy. And it's just They've such a accepted defeat as well, haven't they? They've stopped racing by that point. Yeah, yeah, they realise that they can't um they just can't outpace British ship construction. Um and so they, really they've come up with big of you to admit that, Chris. We're really proud of you. <laughs> I feel like this is like the twelve steps for a German naval addict and you've just achieved step number one. We just need yeah. to get you to step twelve, which is admitting that Jutland was a draw. And that Germany didn't win. <laughs> I asked Ollie. Yet? I asked Ollie the other day. He's like, um, "Who won the Battle of Jutland?" He went, uh, "Britain." I said, "Who do you think Daddy would say he went Germany?" I went, "No, it was a score draw, but I like what you're thinking." <laughs> <laughs> Lockie, take us back to land because uh, you've already mentioned the German army. I, I don't think it's really in dispute, is it? It is the most formidable army on the planet at the time. Yeah, in terms of sheer numbers, I mean, they can mobilise uh, about four million men at the drop of a hat. Um, They're kind they, of worried that by 1916, Russia will be better off. But um, there's always the issue of supply with Russia and transport, isn't there? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a fear that I think maybe has only really come into fruition uh, in sort of 1943 to 45, this, this idea of a, a, a Russian steamroller. Um, you know, this, this podcast isn't about Russia really, but it doesn't quite happen as, as perhaps Germany feared in the First World War. Um, and, and actually their planning for war on two fronts was not to have a war on two fronts really. It was to have a quick war on one front, hold them, um, hold the Russians back with as little force as they can spare really. Um, uh, but that little force that they spare, they have one army um, there, which uh, ends up smashing two Russian armies uh, in 1914. And that tells their army commander, Paul von Hindenburg, into the limelight. And he, he's a name to, well, hold on to, but also he's a guy with a lot to answer for uh, as well for what happens later. Anyway, 
uh, often the West things don't go so well. Um, you have the failure of the Schlieffen plan to um, encircle, break through, get round to Paris, knock the French out of the war, um, knock the, the puny Belgians and pathetic little British army forces aside. Uh, they don't quite manage any of that, uh, really. And, and the French rally uh, very impressively indeed. But they can mobilise a lot of men too. So it's, it's, it was a big, optimistic swing uh, at the French uh, through Belgium. It didn't quite happen. And the German chief of staff resigned with his nerves in tatters. That's uh, Moltke. Uh, he was off. So it's on Falkenhayn takes over as, as the head of the German army. And he stays in post until August 1916. So a lot of the big stuff, the big offensive of 1916 kick off with von Falkenhayn uh, in charge. And they don't necessarily go quite the way he expects either. 1915, broadly speaking, Germany does OK. Uh, in the war, lots of inconclusive stuff, and there's some pretty miserable things, and they have some PR disasters uh, as well. Because 1915 is a miserable year for propaganda for Germany. Um, they kick off with uh, using poison gas first, which the British jump up and down and say, "Oh, look at these terrible uh, barbaric people and this you know, wretched weapon of war that they're using to uh, inflict a, a cruel and unusual death." on men all over the place and while the British are jumping up and down all over the place and, and saying those things they're also stockpiling lots of poison gas um, May you have the sinking of the Lusitania uh, as well which the Americans are very upset uh, about because there's American civilians on board and quite a lot of munitions as well but um, it's still a, a PR fail uh, for the for the Germans uh, and then towards the end of the year in October um, they shoot a British nurse uh, as well, Edith Cavell uh, who've been smuggling soldiers and, and military age out, uh, uh, military age men out to um, neutral countries and getting them away from German capti captivity, and um, and the Germans caught her and shot her. But uh, from that point on, the British are able to say, "Look at these terrible people again, um, executing nurses because they fancy it." So 1915, on a certain level, goes all right for the Germans, um, but they don't make any friends around the world. Um, 1916, yeah, it's the big offensives. So it kicks off with the German offensive at Verdun, uh, and then the, the British join in a bit later on the Somme, and the uh, the Russians join into the Brusilov uh, offensive, and that's when things start turning for Germany, really. Okay, so that's a brief look at the military side of things, but that's not what we're primarily here to do today. So let's talk about German society during the First World War. You've got it in two distinct phases. The first one is uh, August 14th to August 16th. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Yeah, I mean, that's when things are mostly going okay. Actually, um, the Germans have set up an economic model for themselves, which is mainly based on a short war, uh, which is public subscriptions uh, to to buy in to uh, the German war effort with war bonds, uh, effectively. Um, and they do these in every every six months or so. So they start off in September 1914 and then they do another one in spring uh, 1915 and, and autumn uh, 1915 and then spring 1916 again. And these are actually quite effective in keeping down the German short term debt. These are these are working and the German war economy is working until August 1916. Uh, effectively. Now, there's a few things that go wrong in the second half of 1916. The first thing is performance on the battlefield starts to wobble uh, a little bit. Falkenhayn gets sacked as chief of staff of the uh, German army, and Paul von Hindenburg, who beat the Russians um, over in 1914, he gets put in charge. Now, with him comes Erich Ludendorff, his quartermaster general, and between Hindenburg and Ludendorff, they essentially run the country. Not quite for for a year or so they're they're just in charge of the army. A year later things change domestically. But what they insist on straight away is a massive regearing of the German war economy. Okay. Essentially what's happened is with the Somme offensive kicking on, the British have started to pull their weight in like July and August nineteen sixteen. Prior to that they weren't really. Um so we need more, more munitions, more men in uniform uh, and everything else, everything ramped up and, and pure gearing for war at home. That's what they insist on. Now, there's some problems with this. Firstly, they're going to need to spend a lot more money. Um, the system of public subscriptions works to a point, but can't just produce money out of thin air. From that point on, the um, the, the debt starts increasing. Now, that's okay as long as they think they're going to get a big payday at the end of it. So as long as the Germans think they're going to win, they can just keep that debt number growing. Problems later there. Uh, what we also have is a re-gearing of things like uh, the German chemical industry back at home. Now, Germany had quite a strong chemical industry, but they... Uh, they need it all to produce munitions. Now, without getting into too much detail on chemistry, fertilizer and explosives have quite similar chemical makeups. And so if you're going to produce more explosives, you ain't going to produce much more fertilizer. Imports, they were reliant on imports of uh, things like saltpeter from South America to help make explosives. They're not coming in anymore because of the blockade, which has been going since, well, August 1914. Really, so imports are stuffed, production of fertilizer is stuffed, horses get dragged off into the army, so agriculture is going to suffer, men get dragged into the army as well, and so food output goes through the floor. Also, autumn 1916, it's very wet, and the potato harvest rots in the ground. Uh, and so from autumn 1916, the country's economy is on the slide, Food production drops off a cliff. People are going to be hungry. And that is where it starts to unravel a little bit for Germany. That's not them done, though. Very far from it. A lot of fighting potential still to come. And that gearing to produce more munitions, well, it did. So there's a lot more fighting still to do. By this point, it, it's clear that, that Germany probably aren't going to win. So, so how badly does it go for them? 
Well, you say that clear they're not going to win. Actually, I mean, nineteen seventeen is a really interesting year. I mean, after they they gear things up for uh, for, for war production at home. I mean, it works to a point. They do produce a lot more stuff. Um, uh, lots more of this sort of smaller variety of machine guns, loads of artillery uh, as well. And they also um, change the focus. Uh, so where they'd attacked the French in 1916 from 1917 is really going to be the Russians uh, that they go for. And it works. Uh, so 1917 starts pretty scarily uh, for Germany because you have the big um, offensives in the West, and the French offensive doesn't go very well, as we know, the Nivelle offensive does fail, but the British look to be very, very strong, uh, and the Russians go through their February revolution, but the provisional government that comes in seems to think they're going to continue the war. So, um, in mid-1917, oh, and the Americans join it, uh, of course, as well, in April 1917, so middle of 1917, that's when the Germans are probably a little bit worried, and that's when you have the big discussions in the Reichstag to discuss the possibility of peace. Now, the main kind of result from that is the chancellor who allowed the debate on the peace resolution is our man Bettmann Holweg, who'd been in there uh, from the start. Hindenburg and Ludendorff go to the Kaiser and say, this guy clearly isn't patriotic enough. He's allowing us to talk of surrender without annexations. We need him gone. Kaiser says, yes, OK, we'll stick, him, we'll stick someone else in. Uh, then and they end up going with a total nobody. Uh, called Georg Michaelis, who um, just relies on his on his army support for all of his power. He's an army sock puppet. It doesn't last too much longer, but he's there for now. And it's basically a military dictatorship is essentially what we have. So that's 1917 kind of from a political point of view. What happens thereafter on the battlefields, the Western Allies offensive stall in Flanders, this is third Ypres campaign, and even Cambrai later doesn't doesn't achieve what they wanted to. So you have the British army tangled in barbed wire and Flanders mud at the same time as the Germans are smashing the Russians uh, again. So they force their way into um, the the Baltic countries and capture Riga uh, and um, smuggle Lenin back into Russia as well. Uh, and then you have the Bolshevik revolution. So. Um, that you have the, the Russians actually dropping out of the war. Now, it doesn't go quite as easily as the Germans hope in terms of bringing soldiers over to the West, but they can bring a lot. So having gone from a very low ebb in morale sense in the middle of 1917, and the fear that they're not going to win or is going to real, really struggle to win, we get into early 1918. And what's happened is the Russians have surrendered. The Italians have been smashed at Caporetto by this time. The British army's knackered because of its efforts in Flanders and elsewhere. The French army is still doesn't up to the, the grade that it was earlier in the conflict in terms of manpower. And then Americans, they haven't come up to strength yet. And they're still making the same mistakes that the British army was making in 1915. So when it, we talk about kind of it being clear that the Germans weren't going to win, actually, you take a poll in Germany in early 1918, they're absolutely convinced there's no doubt in their mind that victory is just around the corner. And when the big offensives start in 1918, it seems clearer than ever that Germany is going to win because they have great success early on. Now, this is a bit of a fig leaf with some big problems. There are loads of strikes at home, but um, people are really not happy. They're extremely hungry. The uh, excess death rate in Germany is extremely high uh, as well. And when we get later into 1918, it's really no exaggeration to say that hunger and conditions and disease exacerbated by hunger and conditions are killing almost as many people as, as on the battlefield. Um, but 
while they think the payday is coming, they can put up with a lot, actually, the German people. And it's going back to, you know, what we said at the start here. They had a lot of faith in their leadership, in their Kaiser and and their army uh, as well. It's never let them down before. It doesn't seem to be letting them down now. And victory is just around the corner and it will all be worth it. This war is such a one for the investment growing as conditions get worse because the idea of surrender after all of this or defeat after all of this is just unthinkable. Okay, people have to keep fighting to to the end. And that's the attitude in Germany. So when the German spring offensives fail eventually, they start getting tired in April and May and by July, the French counterattack stops the uh, the last German offensives uh, dead in their tracks. And then in August, you have the big British-led uh, attacks at Amiens, which then kick on to that full front action uh, commanded by Marshal Foch. Um, Germany, by that point, is on Struggle Street. The big breakthrough is the Hindenburg Line going at the end of September uh, 1918. And that's when the army leadership sends the word back to Berlin saying, yeah, we can't win this anymore. And try and put yourself in the mind of some of these German people and the German leadership. And they've been feeding the the people in Germany this diet of going to win. We're going to win. And earlier in the year, it's like, we're going to win. We're going to win this year. This is our this is our moment. This is Germany reaching the pinnacle of its power. uh, And we are unstoppable. And we are going to be put in that position of greatness that we've suffered so long for. And then the word comes back saying, yeah, no, not happening. Sorry, what? Um, And people are understandably very upset. So our new chancellor at that time, Georg von Hertling, uh, he resigns. Um, There's a real flap in early October to try and get a new chancellor in. Nobody wants the job. Who wants to be on the uh, the bridge of the ship that's sinking? Uh, It ends up being Prince Max von Baden who takes over um, in close cooperation with the Social Democrats uh, of the Reichstag because they're the largest party. Uh, And ultimately, if, you know, they're going to try and form a government they're going to be needed uh, and as things worsen through october and um calls for an end to the war uh, immediate peace and if not revolution looks plausible um it becomes clear they're going to have to take some pretty drastic methods uh, to restore order to avoid something like the russian revolution of the previous year This is the thing, isn't it? Like you're looking east and the people across Europe are genuinely afraid. It's in Britain as well, because there's strikes all over Britain in 1917 as well, um, that this is is a plague that is catching communism. Yeah, it is. And and with it, it, it's not a it's not a happy go lucky form of revolution either. I mean, this this thing in Russia, when it kicked on, was brutal and murderous. Um, And so anyone of any kind of, you know, standing is is thinking, oh God, if these people got a power, I'm gonna get shot dead or chucked down a well or have my brains bashed in or something like that. And it really is that visceral of fear that people had. All these politicians thinking, well our country's gonna fall apart. We're gonna be dismembered uh, unless we can hold things together back here. Um and so while the army is fighting uh, you have characters like Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg um, uh, leading uh, protests and huge gatherings actually in Berlin itself. Berlin becomes so dangerous that the Kaiser has to uh, leave um, and not not run away completely just yet. He just, he just leaves Berlin for the time being and, and goes out into the countryside. Um, he... Uh, 
the 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 armies carry on fighting and actually kind of the on the on the western front the the casualties among the allied countries that are trying to defeat the german armies are still very high but what germany because the, the german armies are still fighting they've got no shortage of munitions either they've got tons of tons of artillery and millions of machine gun bullets they're running short of men to fire them but that idea of fighting on to the end is still there but what germany can't do at this time because it doesn't have the economic strength anymore to back it up or the industrial capacity to back it up is send aid to the other countries that it was helping before so that's the ottoman empire that's bulgaria that's austria hungary uh, as well and so around about the same time as the hindenburg line breaks allied offenses down in macedonia break through the bulgarian army as well they're not receiving support from the germans anymore and so the bulgarians stick their hands in the air with that the ottoman empire with its northern flank now up in the air says hey do you know what we're done as well uh, and then the austro-hungarians who had been trying to negotiate peace for some time by this stage actually separately uh, the new emperor Karl really wasn't that interested in, in carrying on a, a, an horrible war um he now realizes he's going to have marshal franchet desperate at the head of a Franco, Anglo, Greek, Serbian, all sorts army marching on Vienna um, within and then meeting the Italians there potentially as well. So um, uh, the Austro-Hungarians jacket and all of this would be bad enough if the Germans only had their own enemies to fight. What you have is discussions in Berlin as the uh, Western armies are being marched back. The Eastern Allies are folding. You've got conversations going on between the army leadership and the political leadership saying, can you keep fighting? You know, we're going to get some pretty harsh terms from the Western Allies unless we can kill a few more hundred thousand of them. Then they might soften their terms up a little bit. And then we have the Kiel mutiny. Um, so on top of armies approaching yeah. from the south and southeast, uh, their Western army being mauled by the British and French and Americans and even Belgians by this stage. They also have their own sailors jumping off ships with rifles and moving through cities like Hamburg and Kiel and Bremen um, and socialist revolution fermenting in Berlin. So it really becomes a stage... And Tell us what it looks like to a German on the ground. It must be terrifying. Well, yeah, complete chaos. I mean, when we by the time we get into early November, it, it is absolutely clear that the end is imminent. It's just a case of how Germany survives as a country um, after the, the inevitable de defeat comes. Are we going to get some decent terms from the Americans? Um, while they might hope for some decent terms from the Americans, are the French going to listen to them? Probably not. Well, this uh, is the actually. thing, isn't it? Because Woodrow Wilson has already made it very clear he's got this idea for a League of Nations. He's not really interested in vengeance and stuff. But, yeah, yeah, yeah tell, tell that to the French. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's really not clear what they're going to get uh, from them. And when it gets to the 9th of November, 9th of November is, of course, Day of Destiny in Germany anyway. There's so many big things that happen on the 9th of November historically from, you know, the Berlin Wall opening in, in 1989. Um, this is this is a big one because um, essentially we have the armistice uh, delegation away in France trying to get the French to stop killing their soldiers so that they can bring them back and fight the revolution in Germany itself. And so they're asking for peace terms. Uh, you know, an armistice is absolutely necessary for Germany at this time. 
you have sailors moving through German, German cities, as we've said, but the crowds in Berlin start gathering. And it's just, you've got nothing else to do, really. You know, defeat is imminent. You want to know what's going on. So huge crowds forming outside the Reichstag building, the Parliament building, huge crowds uh, following Karl Liebknecht around and going to the Royal Palace. And word reaches the Reichstag that um, Karl Liebknecht is about to proclaim a socialist republic uh, in Berlin down at the Royal Palace. And um, and one of the Reichstag deputies, a social democrat, Philip Scheidemann, um, decides to uh, preempt him by climbing out the window, uh, one of the, the second story uh, windows of the Reichstag building, climbs out uh, and to the crowd there, he proclaims a republic there on the spot. Um, and his his leader, uh, Philip uh, Friedrich Ebert, is inside trying to negotiate or trying to work out what it is they're going to do, you know, what, what, what post-war Germany is going to look like and what can we sell to the Allies to make it look like we are serious about peace. You know, obviously the Kaiser's not going to be able to stay in post, but maybe we'll stay as a constitutional monarchy somehow. And um, someone comes running in and goes, what's that, what's that cheering going on? Uh, Friedrich, you might want to come and have a chat with Bill. He's just proclaimed a republic outside so it's, it's, it's absolute chaos in berlin it's 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 madness but huge crowds ex, expectant of, of some kind of redemption maybe for them or at least hoping for the aversion of disaster you know having suffered for so long so it's it's incredibly serious and incredibly heavy stuff no chance for kaiser in victoria louise then <laughs> <laughs> what does happen to her chris fill us in everyone wants to know what happens to your future wife um, she she marries in 1913 to a, another German prince. I don't remember his name. He's not important. And um, yeah, they, she lives out her life on her estates quite happily. Um, still trying to get back some of her belongings, but never gets it back and just happily lives out her life until 1980. Wait, the day you sweep her off her feet, right? We She died a month after I was born. <laughs> yeah. Poor Chris. Yeah. Next time. Like two ships passing in the night, right? Yeah, we need to hurry up yeah. and invent that time machine. Yeah. <laughs> you you all be that unnamed German noble and uh, <laughs> live a, a happy pastoral life. Uh, you know he's light. You know his luck. He'll end up at the bottom of a mine shaft. <laughs> <laughs> you won't, they won't even kill him either. He'll just be whimpering down there with a twisted ankle. <laughs> <laughs> or wake up on a gunboat somewhere out in his sing towel and be part of the East, East Asian squadron. It's like, oh, that's going to end well. Oh, God, yeah, I know how this goes. <laughs> <laughs> Someone let me off the ship. <laughs> Lockie, summarise Germany's uh, war for us. Uh, your summary, you put, like, how to screw up a successful country in four years and three months. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, um, they they could potentially, if they'd swallowed their pride, have maybe arranged peace in early 1917, possibly. I think, you know, if they'd agreed to, um, obviously hand back all of France and Belgium that they'd taken, um, I doubt the Western Allies would care very much if they made some, some territorial gains in, in the East. Possibly they would have done. I doubt they would have lost too much sleep, really. Maybe a, a referendum. Uh, in Alsace and Lorraine about uh, rejoining France, something like that. Swallow their pride, suck it up, and maybe they've had a, a chance for peace and keep their country together. But they decided not to. They decided to press on to whatever end, and the end that they got was complete and utter ruination. 
and creating the kind of conditions in which real nastiness can take hold. And if anything, I, I kind of I, I kind of resent the German leadership for doing this. Um, I also think the uh, Western Allies rather forgot their Machiavelli uh, in the sense that when you've got a defeated enemy there, you either treat them with kindness so they don't want to have a go at you or you utterly wipe them out so they can't have a go at you. And they did neither. So, yeah, poor decisions all round, uh, really. I mean, the German soldier could fight. I don't, you know, in the, in the First World War, it's a little bit different to the Second World War uh, in terms of the motivation for fight and the ideology they were fighting for. I don't think it's particularly sinister necessarily uh, in the First World War. It's God, King and Fatherland for the ordinary German soldier, same as same as for most of the other countries. But I think the leadership themselves uh, could have done with giving themselves a bit of a shake and uh, trying to lose some of that pride, which they never did. And there was consequences for all of them. Yep, that's sowing the seeds for World War Two and everything that was to follow. Lockie, thank you so much. This has been brilliant. Uh, this has been a crash course in how Germany waged World War One unsuccessfully. Uh, yeah, if you are interested in learning more stuff like this, then do join the Great War Group, uh, and then you will be getting magazines and courses and conferences and just bludgeoned with the knowledge from all directions. Uh, and there's quite a few opportunities for drinking as well. Um, and Chris will be there wearing his German Admiral's hat. Uh, and teaching everyone why I hate England, apparently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He will be wearing other stuff, not just his Admiral's yeah. hat. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> the last conference. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks very much, Lockie. Cheers. Thank you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.